This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The Andy J Podcast. Podcast. Hello, welcome to the latest episode of the Andy J Podcast. Thank you so much for your company. Another show we're bringing out on a day that isn't a Tuesday. If you listen in real time, if you listen the days these come out, wow, you're my favourites. That's mega. We have a very special guest for you today. He's a cleric, a broadcaster, an author, and of course, a former chart-topping communard. If you don't know who it is yet and you haven't read the blurb, if we've just rolled through, then... I imagine you've guessed it by now because there weren't many in the communards, were they? Certainly only one of them then went on to become a cleric. It is, of course, the Reverend Richard Coles, who was one hell of a musician and had an incredible life. I mean, huge pop success in his 20s, I guess his late teens, early 20s. He had massive pop success and then all the fun. And then in his late 20s, sort of at the tail end of of his pop success, religion found him. And, uh, well, that's... That took on a different slant. His his whole life took on a completely different journey. And of course, we'll also know him as being the man who <laughs> got the lowest ever score in Strictly Come Dancing, his Pasadoble to the Flash Gordon's theme tune. <laughs> uh, scored him in 2017, the lowest ever score in Strictly Come Dancing. I'm sure he won't mind me reminding you of that. Anyway, here is the brilliant, the fascinating, lovely company, Reverend Richard Coles. Podcast. My next guest, I am so delighted to be chatting to him. He's a cleric, a broadcaster, an author, and a former chart-topping communard. That really narrows it down, doesn't it? It can only be the wonderful Reverend Richard Coles. How are you? I'm very well, Andy. Thank you. It's a beautiful way of narrowing it down to the only person it could be, which is me. I keep hearing my own CV sometimes, and I think that's surely the work of a fantasist. But <laughs> no, here we are. Well, it's, it's one of those glorious things where if you sort of Google your name or put yourself into Facebook or LinkedIn or whatever, you might see 30 or 40 or 50 people with the same name as you. But when you go for the specifics of your life, there ain't no one else doing this. Not really, although you never know what Robbie Williams is going to do next, do you? So yeah, we'll hold the front page. <laughs> that is a distinct possibility, yes, that's, this is very true. Um, now, Richard, I'm mindful, of course, that we are going to be talking about funeral care research and uh, from co-op and so on, and I, I promise we'll get onto that and give it due care and attention, but as this is the first time we've made friends, would it, would it be okay for you and I to chat about your incredible journey through life? Yeah, of course. Talk about whatever you like, Andy. <laughs> That's, well, there's the pressure. I mean, that <laughs> where to start? Do you know, I, I have been thinking about this for a while, actually, Richard, and I've, and I've been kind of thinking to myself, we only have half an hour. Usually I get to chat to people for a little bit longer. And I don't want to do the amazing things that have happened and the amazing way that you have been able to translate your life, your emotions, your feelings to people to help others. I don't want to do it a disservice by kind of brush stroking things. Do you know what I mean? 
Well, it's so hard to kind of have a perspective on your own life in that sort of way because I just do what I do. And it was just one thing after another. And it's only really when you hear it sort of reflected in other people's experience that you realize that there are perhaps some kind of, I don't know, unexpected twists and turns to it in an unusual landscape. Because when it's your own life, it's just what you do, isn't it? Well, I suppose we all walk our own path, yes, but but not many of us, I think, are aware of the impact we have on others. Is that different for you, partly because of the new career? I call it new. You've been uh, a reverend for some time now, but nonetheless, it's the sort of latest chapter in your career. Uh, but and but also because of your sort of public persona, you have a reach. That's an interesting question. I think the the most of the good work that you do as a parish priest, you're sowing seeds that'll bear fruit perhaps a long way down the line. So you very rarely get to see, you're more likely to see uh, your mistakes rather than your successes, I think. I do, the thing I notice now more is actually really from the communards, because quite often now people, you know, if they know who I am, will stop me and say that the records we made, particularly if they were, you know, young gay people back in the 80s, made a big difference in their lives. And it's always very touching if people say that. Mm. And sometimes, actually, funerals are interesting. The sort of feedback you tend to get is often when a funeral has gone well and it's met the needs of the family and they've been moved by it and you've managed to get it, you know, the right mixture of sadness and celebration. Then they will often write and say that they've, that they've appreciated that. And then you think, this is why I love this job. Yes, yes. Well, your your path to that job is, I mean, we've talk, talked about the communards already and, and you've already... You've already mentioned the gay community, but but can we explore that? Because when when you grew up as a as a young man, as far as I understand it, and and please forgive my uh, the, the sort of blanks in my knowledge, but but the, to the best of my understanding, you weren't leaning towards religion as a young man, despite being a, a choir boy. You weren't uh, full of faith and getting down on your knees, praying to God every day, etc. No, good. I mean, nothing will if you nothing will put you off organised religion more than being formally part of it when you were a child. As I was a chorister when I was a kid, so from the age of about eight, I was you know, singing. Um, I was involved in the music and the life of chapel, and I actually loved the music and I liked being in chapel. But I was absolutely certain that religion was a fairy tale and that nobody in their right mind would try to live live by it. I think that came along a bit later, but it did, of course lay a foundation. It did kind of sketch out a landscape for me. And then when I wanted to go there, I sort of knew where to go. I knew the way in. And that was um, really helpful. Yes, that's, I mean, that's a very interesting point. Uh, I mean, no religion as a child. You then, I'm, I'm skipping a few years, my apologies, but but at 16, sure. I'm, it's partly because I'm aware of the, the, the clock on this conversation. At 16, you, you came out to your mother and I believe that was a, a source of great relief. But after you came out, you then fell into quite a severe depression. That's right. I mean, a very common experience um, for LGBT people, especially of my age and background, was that um, there was a very rocky period because it was a hostile world we were growing up in. And if you realised you were gay, that was not something which immediately suggested a life rich in opportunity and reward lay ahead. And I think often, funny enough, it's after you make the bold step of coming out, that you sort of pay the price for that. And that was certainly true for me and for lots of other people. And it's still the case now that LGBT people tend to have a rockier time of it in terms of mental health, particularly around um, teenage years, which are hard enough anyway. I'm happy to say now that you know, more and more people 
are just unbothered by sexual orientation and the LGBT people now as they come out do so in a much more understanding and inclusive and kind world and that's um, all for the best. Not everywhere, of course, but in places like Britain, that's more and more the case. Yes, yes, this, it's, it's much better understood, it's much more celebrated and it's, it's very happily much more accepted. I, I know what you mean about the, you know, the, the days of yore, as it were. Um, and, and, I, and I think the, the world, at least in the UK, has changed and moved on, thankfully. But, but was it a little bit like when you've been working towards something, for example, kids sitting their exams or whatever, and you have all this momentum and you build up and the pressure, the pressure, the pressure, and then it's done. And then you just sort of, you fall back and you go, oh, phew. Well, I think often... The- you carry a heavy weight. You don't realize how heavy it is until you put it down you know, because you're too busy carrying it, I suppose, uh, when, when it's actually uh, in your arms. So I think it was perhaps a bit like that. I was just, it took everything I got just to get through the day. And finally, when I kind of stepped forward into a world which I hoped would be better, and indeed it was, hurrah, I think that was when I sort of felt the weight that I'd been carrying more. Yes, yes. And this was a weight that you were able to discuss and analyze in, in very, I'm, assuming forensic detail, um, with the good people at St. Andrew's Healthcare, where you were an inpatient for a while, where they were, they were working through your depression with you. Yeah, I mean, it was, I was just very, very lucky indeed to be able to be a patient at St. Andrew's in Northampton, which is actually a historic, we used to be a historic asylum in the days when they called such places asylums. But by the time I got there, I was doing very innovative and pioneering and creative work with people who were um, dealing with all sorts of mental health issues. And it was incredibly good for me. And it just gave me a bit of confidence. I had a wonderful psychiatrist called Colin Wilson, who's still a friend of mine now, who was just completely cool about um, sexuality. And when I told him what was up with me, he just gave me um, a book by Jeffrey Weeks called Coming Out that was the sort of handbook of the time without any judgment or comment and just let me sort of get on with it. I realized, oh, this is just you know a variation on the theme of human sexuality. There's nothing to see here, folks. Mm. Yes, yes. Well, I mean, he sounds like a, a great guy and exactly who you needed at the time. I mean, mm. life is often understood after the fact, isn't it, Richard? I think, I think it's yeah. fair to say everyone can put the pieces of their life together. And, and there seems a very obvious chess play here, which is if you hadn't met him, if you hadn't been liberated, because you, you then embraced the scene, as it were. You moved to London and became a, a, an activist, a campaigner. And of course, if you hadn't done that, you wouldn't have met Jimmy, music, etc. Yeah. It sort of yeah. follows follows from there, really, doesn't it? I mean, partly that was just simply, I was I was a, a gay runaway to London when I was 18, and so was Jimmy Somerville. And we were very fortunate to meet, and I was very fortunate to hitch my wagon to one of the most talented singers and characters of in popular culture of the 1980s and that was really good i really think also if i'm honest i must have seen an opportunity in that and decided to pursue it too there was an ambitious little part of me that saw uh, um, that potential open up and then all of a sudden by the end of the 1980s we were pop stars actually in my case the unlikeliest pop star that ever jumped up and down on a rostrum in the top of the pop studio. But there you were, there you are. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I mean, I still remember Yaz. I think she was quite a, an unusual pop star at the time. <laughs> 
Well, at least she kind of looked like she meant it. I looked like <laughs> I'd kind of wandered in from, I don't know, a sort of moss bros or something and was standing awkwardly behind my keyboard as if it were a, ca- a counter in menswear. It's quite strange. Oh, I don't know. I, th- I think it's great. I have seen a video of you, of course, you you must be aware of this, playing the, the piano break in Don't Leave Me This Way. <laughs> In, in full dog collar, etc. And it's wonderful. What a piece of joy. Oh, well, yeah, that was fun. I mean, quite, this is a, we have a parish band. I mean, I'm Vicar of Findhead, and we have a, a band at the cricket club called The Cupping Melons, Don't <laughs> Ask. But I think the last time I played that song, I guest spotted with The Cupping Melons at the cricket club, and we had a lovely time. And I thought melons were bald, not cups. Yes. I'd say to you, whatever this name means, I just don't want to know. It's best if I proceed on the basis of ignorance. <laughs> yes, I went down the fruit option as well, but perhaps it's something else. <laughs> I have no idea. I couldn't comment. <laughs> it's not It's not a huge leap of the imagination. So your 20s, pop stardom and all the life that followed, I guess, you know, the, the tour bus, the groupies, the gigs and the drugs, you yeah. enjoyed it all. Yes, I mean, I think you know, pop stars exist partly to live out the fantasies of other people, and so it would have been rude not to, really. <laughs> so, um, kind of threw myself into that, and there was a period of wild abandon, and because the end of the eighties coincided with the second summer of love and the arrival of ecstasy and the rave scene, and um, I unusual on the CV of a country parson, but I did rather throw myself into that with my long sleeve t-shirts and my ridiculous training shoes and my shorts and sombrero and giant beads and all that and Ibiza. But it was it was fantastic until it had to stop because it got a bit messy in the end. During <sighs> during that heyday, was there any every part because I the, the sort of if you'd gone back to yourself then and said, hey, guess what, in a, in a few years' time, you'll have found God and, uh, and you'll be speaking to the masses wearing a dog collar and so on, would you have believed yourself at that point? No. No, I can't. I, I think even at my moment of deepest confusion, I would have thought, well, one thing I know for certain is that I will never, ever be religious. Because it's interesting, isn't it, those things which we absolutely certainly will never, never be. Why feel so strongly about it? Perhaps because we recognise that there's, it's making a claim on us that we're not fully aware of. Yes. And also now, my nephew Oliver, who's 18, he saw mm-hmm. a video of me when I was in a band, and he went, you know, Uncle Richard, and I went, yeah, he said, kind of obvious there was a vicar struggling to get out even then. <laughs> <laughs> not to you, though. That's the key, That's the no, key thing. No, not to me at all. Not to me at all. Although I don't think it would have been a huge surprise for those around me. Hello, it's John Marco here from our sister podcast, The Driven Chat Podcast. Right now, you're listening to The Andy J Podcast, and it's quite good, isn't it? In fact, do me a favour, give it a little review, five stars, and wherever you're listening, hit that little subscribe or follow button, because it does help. See you around. The Andy J Podcast. <laughs> well, fair enough. You talked about how it was great until it wasn't. I'm, I'm hmm. obviously taking you back to your 20s again. Uh, what was the... What was the sort of alarm call for you? Oh, it was just having lost weekends, really. And I can remember kind of coming to on the circle line on a Monday morning and not really remembering anything in between Friday evening and then and thinking this is dangerous. And, uh, and you know, you kind of realise that that kind of craziness has got, one of you has got to go. Either you've got to get out of it or it will get you. So I didn't want to be got, so I got out of it. And that's when I sort of started to put my life together. And religion answered a very profound need when I did put my life together and I found my way back in. Uh, 
I ask this delicately, was, was religion a reaction to the lifestyle? I think perhaps it was in a way. I mean, I think what happened was sex and drugs and rock and roll, like crashed and burned, as you do. And I think if you ever hit the bottom, as I did, religion has got a very powerful, there's a very powerful tradition of all of a sudden making sense to people when they're on their uppers. You know, all of a sudden life is sort of dark and hard around you and then there's sort of light and understanding. And that's what happened to me. And the minute I kind of tuned into it, I realized that it had been kind of waiting for me all along. And uh, and not sort of hostile territory, which I thought it was, but my my homeland. And um, and I just had to accept that reluctantly at first. And then um, I thought, oh, no, this is this is this is me. How does it present itself for you, Richard? Excuse my ignorance, because I'm I'm genuinely fascinated from someone that that sort of utterly denied organised religion, as you've called it, through to somebody who who is, uh, you know, the flag bearer. Are you? And again, I don't understand, so I'm asking dumb questions. But no, fine. Does does God speak to you? Do you feel? Do you believe in the God or or a more secular feel? What is it that? What changed in you emotionally, physically, mentally? What What is it that, that gives you this belief? I became aware that God was real and, um, and that what made my life interesting and rich and what gave my relationships their depth and their, and their interest and their power and their peculiarity was absolutely tied up with that. And the more I became acquainted with myself and the more I was sensitive to the really profound currents of my own existence and being and others, I kind of realized that all these claims that have been made about God and Jesus Christ, which had seemed nonsensical to me when I was young, well, in one sense nonsensical, the music about it made perfect sense to me. And I realized that I, I just needed to put to one side my reservations, my skepticism, my fear, my anxiety, and embrace it. And once I did, it was immensely rewarding. It just bore such fruit in my life. And I thought, this is where I need to be and this is what I need to do. And I need to just allow myself to live with, you know, it's faith. It's not something that you can, it's not evidence-based in the way that lots of things we need to be and want to be are evidence-based. It's about faith and it needs to be about faith. You can't do it in any other way. And, and that's, you know, happened and flourishing continues to happen. And sometimes I have fallow periods and sometimes I stumble and sometimes I fall and sometimes I'm distracted and sometimes I'm too absorbed in myself. But that frequency still broadcasts loud and clear and I tune into it and it's the best, the best thing. Yes, it sounds absolutely fascinating. I, you know, I'm not, I'm not being sceptical here at all, Richard. I'm just no, I don't mind, don't mind at all. I'm, I'm, I'm extremely curious because I'm, I'm not someone that has had the calling, or, 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 or it's not that I don't believe. It's just that there's that. I, I, I'd like to know why people do, if that makes mm. sense. I think that's really interesting, and I think that lots of people who find Christianity baffling irrelevant and pointless and nonetheless fascinated by people who make a commitment to it that's true for me when I was young although as I said it didn't, it didn't make sense to me I was fascinated by chaplain I had at school and by the vicar I had when I was growing up and my grandfather who was a very sort of serious but interestingly eccentric Christian and I thought oh they make this look possible and then when I wanted it I thought maybe this could be possible for me too wow 
Wow. And, and I'm assuming you found it utterly transforming when you, when you went all in, when you dived in with, with both feet. Yeah, I mean, it's like anything. You, you get out of it what you put in. I mean, the thing is, I, I sort of kind of thought it was a sort of pastime at first and then a sort of occupation. And then you realize that it is huge and it involves all of you and all of everything. And gradually you approach it more in an attitude of, I, I try to think, humble understanding. And when you do that, it just continues to become richer and more rewarding. And you see it happen in people's lives all the time. I make it sound like this is something peculiar to me. It's not. I and mean, I'm constantly encountering people who have that, that same experience. And, um, you know, to lots of people, it seems like a, something that's no longer relevant and belongs to the past. But actually, if you look around the world, most people in the world, at all times and in all places, have found it to be absolutely fundamental, absolutely fundamental to their existence, as I think it is to mine. Yes. Yes, you explain it very eloquently, Richard. It's, uh, it's very relaxing and calming hearing you describe it, actually. Oh, thank you. Um, so is... My fourth coffee has uh, perhaps calmed me down a little bit. Than I had, so. <laughs> mm-hmm. it's, it's good to know that coffee is endorsed. I love that. Um, Richard, can we, are you comfortable talking about David? Um, yeah. You've, you've written your, your memoir of love and loss, The Madness of Grief, which does, of course, chronicle David's remarkable life, but, but also the fact that he, he died and, and what happened to you and your reaction to that. Not as a guidebook, but just as a, if you're experiencing this, this is what happened to me. This is my truth. No, no, just exactly that. I mean, I, I was sort of, I started, I, I, as David was dying, I, I kind of just, I went, you know, I just wanted to be with him and family. And then after he died, I sort of started writing about it. I think because I wanted to just hang on to bits of him as he sort of fragmented and disappeared into the universe. And I wrote it down, I put a thing in the paper and people liked it. My publisher said, maybe you should write this up. And I did. And I didn't want a sort of how to grieve book. There are plenty of those around if you want that sort of thing. I just wanted to say what it was like because what I valued when I talked to other people who'd been bereaved was just them telling me what it had been like for them. Yes, when you lose someone of, of, of such importance like David, of course, was to you, there isn't a guidebook, despite what happens on, on the shelves of the publishers. You're, you're lost at sea. I mean, you don't. Everyone yeah. has their own response to it, and, and you want to you want to be told, "Am I behaving normally? Is my reaction standard, or not?" Yeah, yeah and the funny is, if you're a vicar, people think that you're you've got this, and actually you haven't, because you know, even though I believe that David is not is lost in this life, but he awaits me in something beyond this life, which will be wonderful. I still want him to walk in the room and he's not going to do that. And it's devastating. And when he actually died, I was devastated and then had to make decisions about funerals and everything. And I know all about that because that's my job. But when you're the person who suffered the bereavement, you realize the value of having talked about it beforehand, about having some sense of what David's wishes were and knowing what makes a good funeral which is why the, the, the stuff that the cult's been doing, their research, is so interesting. They're the biggest, they do more funerals than anybody else, so they would know better than anybody else. And it's about making sure that the person who has gone is, is visible, is honoured and respected and truthfully represented in the funeral, and not lost behind rituals that no longer mean anything to people or with hymns that nobody wants to sing along to. You have to get the reality of the person there in order for people to grieve properly and to begin to heal. It's so rewarding to hear, to hear you say this. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about this study because I've, I've read it as well, but, but as, a, as a sort of uh, 
as a recipient, you find yourself having to deal very immediately with the business of death. You have to choose coffins. You have to talk about what you think they'd like. And, it, and, and all of this whilst trying to process the horror of what's just happened, the shock, the, the, the devastating grief, you sort of have to hold it together to make some fast decisions. And it's, it's easy to just go, oh, we'll do what always, always happens. But actually, that's, that's changing, isn't it? Yeah, and that's where a good funeral director and a good celebrant or clergy person or bereavement officer will help you because they will know that, that the one-size-fits-all of the past is no longer, you know, it doesn't really work. We're a more diverse community of people now. Our expectations and our needs are different. And so you have to understand that because the job of the funeral is to um, connect to those kind of the deepest parts of you, which are in total disarray because you're devastated by bereavement and also to do that publicly so you can recognize what's happened and that the people around you also care about that person and care about you can recognize what's happened it has to be serious because what's happened is serious and also people everywhere all times and all places have been um, you know marking the deaths of people with special ceremony but it has to be ceremony that works. It needs to be. I mean, it's very interesting. I thought the funeral of um, the Duke of Edinburgh, you know, nothing could be more traditional than that in a way. But what's the thing we remember is the adapted Land Rover as a hearse. Yes. And we like that moment because yes. it was him. Yes. Because we recognize him in this. That there was not just a national figure in a, you know, remembered ceremonially, but it was also a person who had a life and a character and a personality. And we wanted that to be, you know, part of that experience so sorry to, to get back on track i mean this this actually took me a little bit by surprise the the, the gen z uh, that's the 18 to 24 year olds 40 percent of them have already given serious thought about how they want to say goodbye well i'm glad to hear it actually because um you know it's something that's coming for all of us so yeah we bought the victorians and their elaborate rituals of mourning with you know blackboarded calling cards and all the rest of it but they knew something we've forgotten this is coming. Get on terms with it because you're going to need to. And also, this is not something that we can just export to the edges of our experience. You know, deaths now happen in hospitals, tend to, or hospice is not at home anymore. And lots of us get to maybe towards the end of our lives without ever having really experienced it. So we're ill prepared. But it makes sense, it seems to me, to be prepared for this. And I'm glad that the you know, younger people are getting this, to be prepared for something because it's coming. And one of the lessons we'll take from lockdown, I think, is that you know, life can be going along tickety-boo and all of a sudden, out of the blue with no warning, can come something, something can come which can kind of rob you of the people who are dear to you. Yes. And, you know, and to, I think it's sort of a sense, to, to have an element of preparation for that is a really sensible and wise thing to do. Yes, and the the sort of messaging that's coming through is traditional is done. You know, there's let's have less of the sombre, dark suits and so on let's bring in more color more life if that's the right word to yeah. to a celebration i think is is perhaps the best way to phrase it yeah but i think people forget that the tradition is something that constantly changes i mean it holds to eternal truths but it does so in ways which adapt always to circumstances and if you go to a traditional african funeral it's full of celebration and joy and delight and maybe that's a lesson that we can learn. I was seeing that now. I did a funeral. I uh, was involved with a funeral a little while ago in Manchester, and there was a young guy who had died, and he had been a city fan. All his mates turned up in a city strip 
and sang the songs from the Etihad. And it was really moving because they were able to express their solidarity and their love for him and for each other and to use a sort of form of public language and ceremony that was really meaningful for them. And that's the right way to do it, I think. And incorporate it in other elements too, because you often have perhaps parents and grandparents who have different expectations. You have to find a way of making that work. Yes, it's a little like planning a wedding. You've got to think about lots of people, not just not just what the the bride and groom are up for. Slightly strange one, really, Richard. But have you started sort of considering what you would like when your time comes? You're fifty nine. You've got plenty of time. Well, you never know, do you? No, I would like to have a ring cycle, 15 hours of Wagnerian music drama at mine, but I don't think anyone <laughs> would, would stand for that. But I'll work, I think I'll work out something. <laughs> fair, fair enough. What's the strangest thing you've witnessed? I've, I've heard of things like uh, there's, the old, there's the old thing where Great Walls of Fire is, is, is the walkout music and so on, which is when, when someone's being oh, created. I mean, the one that surprised me most of all was one of my own records, walking out and all of a sudden someone playing Don't Leave Me This Way, which was quite a surprise. Yes. Um, my favourite story happened to a friend of mine, actually, who was at a funeral, and they released a dove at the graveside to fly up into the sky to symbolise the ascent of the soul to the eternal, and it was immediately taken by a sparrow hawk. Oh, no. Much to the horror of everybody. Oh. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I wouldn't no. recommend that. Yeah. <laughs> Crikey. The one that always lives with me, and I, 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 I sort of... I think about this frequently, actually, so I, I'm going to share it anyway, is when I was at university, I was I was taught by a wonderful man who played Margaret Thatcher in The Spitting Image. Uh, Steve Nallen. That's Steve Nallen. I love yeah. Steve Nallen. And, and, his, yeah. and his partner um, had created Button Moon. And, of course, he, oh, really? he had tragically died. And uh. he told us that, yeah, they, they played... I remember Steve sitting with us and telling us, around his house, actually, telling us about how his 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 closing music was the the button moon theme tune and it, it, it absolutely broke me when he said that oh. i just fell apart you know and he was sort of telling yeah. it in a sort of jovial sort of friendly way obviously made peace with it years years yeah. before but yeah absolutely devastated listen thank you so much for your company richard i've really appreciated it it's, well, been, it's really it's nice to talk i'm sorry it was shorter than we'd like maybe another time let's hope so take care have a good one thanks a lot Bye-bye. bye now bye bye the andy J podcast there you go that was the reverend richard coles really enjoyed chatting to richard and i must tell you he sent me a lovely message uh two or three days after our chat just to sort of say i'm sorry we didn't get to speak for longer and i thought that was a lovely thing for him to say because it did feel a little hurried and rushed and so i'm delighted that that he kind of felt that too and hopefully we'll be able to bring you a longer conversation perhaps even more in depth in the near future we'll see watch this space on that one what i can tell you is next week we have a oh a conversation that I'm really excited by. I'm not sure if you will be aware of this person or not yet. It depends if you like your explorers or not. But we have this incredible explorer called Levinson Wood. Now, you may immediately go, Levinson Wood, yeah, of course. Of course I know who he is. Lots of people do. I did. But I've mentioned to a few of my friends, and like, oh, no, go on, tell me about him. He has lived an amazing life, and the adventures he has been on, goodness me, one to... Well, make sure you hear it, basically, because I cannot wait to talk to him. He's got a new book out and, well, we've got a lot to discuss. 
So please follow the show because I don't think you subscribe anymore to podcasts. I think you follow them. So please do follow the Andy J podcast. It'll keep you up to date with all the latest episodes. And we bring out at least one a week for you at the moment. We're absolutely steamrolling through the chats right now. And also do check out our back catalogue. It's enormous. It's full of super superstars. There's A-listers in there and just some mega conversations. So please do check out the huge, huge back catalogue of conversations that we have waiting for you in our conversation store. Thank you so much for your company today. It means the world. I really appreciate it. And we'll chat to you again next week. Go well. The Andy J Podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.